Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. I'm your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and I am joined once again by my co-host Tim Shaw on part two of the San Diego Chargers. On to the 81 season. Now the 81 draft went really well. The Chargers drafted a very versatile running back out of Auburn named James Brooks. They also got two tight ends to complement uh, Winslow, who were, were good blockers and good receivers, Eric Sievers and Pete Hollihan, who would be with the team for a bunch of years. Um, but as the team was showing ongoing success and the players were getting better and better, they wanted more money. And Gene Klein, being a very shrewd businessman, didn't like to pay guys more than he thought they were worth. So what happened was is that John Jefferson, who got 33 touchdowns oh. over 3,000 yards in three years, pulled oh. out for more money, and he got shipped to the Green Bay Packers, probably one of the cities with the least San Diego-like climate. <laughs> and the Packers were not good at that point. They were mediocre. Um, so he essentially became a, a decoy for James Lofton, the future Hall of Fame wide receiver, and, and J.J.'s productivity was almost halved. Now, in the strike short year 82, he did make a Pro Bowl um, with a few good games. He had two touchdown catches in a playoff game. But as long as he remained injury-free, if he stayed in San Diego, he would have been one of the all-time greats, no doubt in my mind, period, period. As long as he had, you know, Coriel telling, telling Fouts to throw to him, the dude was going to put up insane numbers, like Randy Moss numbers for years. Now, Unfortunately, there were some other departures because Gene Klein didn't want to negotiate. Star D.N. Fred Dean wanted a higher salary, and a few games into the 81 season, Klein dealt uh, Fred Dean to San Francisco. Now, uh, when, he was, when he went to San Francisco, all he did was become an all-pro that year, win two Super Bowls, go to two total Pro Bowls, and made the Hall of Fame. And when he went to the Hall of Fame, he was inducted as a 49er, which hurts. Now, the Chargers looked to other teams to replace Jefferson because they had Joyner, they had Winslow, but they looked for another receiver which had a similar skill set. And, you know, they went back to the well. They called up the Saints, and the Saints were happy to deal them Wes Chandler, who was their leading receiver. So Chandler came from the Saints, and he was reunited with his former teammate Chuck Muncie. Now, Chuck Muncie was in full gear that year. He ran for 19 touchdowns that year. Pretty spectacular. Um, so they plugged Chandler right into the offense where J.J. used to be. And it's a big difference when you have Fouts throwing to you rather than Archie Manning. Trust me. When your offense is good, unlike the Saints. So they scored 29.9 points per game, which led the NFL. Unfortunately, they didn't put as much emphasis on the defense. So the defense became more and more porous and allowed more points than all but two teams in the NFL. Yeah, Pete, a lot of people remember, you know, the 81 team, which we'll get into in a little bit, really being having the closest shot. But the 80 defense was much, much more opportunistic. Like you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And losing, losing Fred Dean and everyone else really affected this team. Yeah. I mean, you get rid of a, a future Hall of Famer and a probable future Hall of Famer, yep. J.J., um, it didn't help. So their strategy was score more points than the other team. I know that's the general strategy of every sport, 
except for golf, where you try to get less strokes. We know that. But they tried to just – they knew they were going to let up 28 points a game, so they tried to score 31. So now their they're D, you know, if they made a stop, it was considered cause for celebration. But with this approach, they did win 10 games. They won the AFC West Division for third straight year. And they were just – they were spectacular on offense. The opening Monday night game of the year, they were playing the uh, ornery AFC Central champ Cleveland in Cleveland, and they beat them 44-14, to which another game I remember watching and watching very vividly. They just ran all over a very good team on their home turf. So they put up over 40 points four times that year, including a 55-21 to beatdown of the Raiders in Oakland Week 12. During that game, Kellen Winslow caught five touchdowns and fouls through six. In the second meeting, a few weeks later, they beat Oakland again. So that's a little bit of revenge from the year before when Oakland destroyed their hopes and went off to, went off to win the Super Bowl as the first wild card team ever to do so. So on to the 81 playoffs. So we were getting spoiled. We, like, latch on to the Chargers, go to the playoffs, lose. Go to the playoffs, win, then lose. And we're like, all right, this, is, this, team's, got, this team's on a roll. They get to the 81 playoffs. They had another first-round bye, but they were not going to play a home game. They were slated to play Miami in the Orange Bowl on January 2nd. Now, this game would go on to be one of the most exciting NFL games ever played, and it's been discussed many times, but we still should go over the details. It bears repeating because it all contributes to the heartbreak and disappointment felt by the Chargers and their fans. So it was a hot, sticky night, very humid, and the Chargers just came out hot. They exploded in the first half, and they scored 24 points in the first quarter on the road in the playoffs. They got a touchdown run by Muncie, a touchdown catch by Brooks, who I mentioned earlier, and then even a punt return by the elusive West Chandler, who was the up-back, the punt fell short, and he just blew up the field, and the Dolphins weren't ready for him. So the Chargers were winning 24 to nothing. And this is against Don Shula, Mr. 17-0 coach, Hall of Fame coach. But really, much to Shula's credit, he kept his shit together. He kept his calm. He took out scrambling quarterback David Woodley, who had really been ineffective, and he put the king of the comebacks, the master of backup quarterbacks, Don Strzok. Now, Don Strzok put, started to orchestrate an amazing comeback. For the game, he threw for over 400 yards and four touchdowns. Not bad when you're coming off the bench. And in the second quarter, he led them to 17 points, so 17 unanswered points, including the famous hook and ladder play on the last play of the first half where the, he threw to Tony Nathan – who, um, I'm sorry, he threw to Durio, no, he threw to Tony Nathan, uh, who caught it and, and tossed it up, a design lateral to Durio Harris, who was streaking towards the end zone, and they cut the lead to 24 to 17. So, but Peter, just so you know, the Dolphins today on a two point conversion used a hook and ladder. And did it work? It worked to uh, get a, uh, a seven point lead over the, uh, or 10 point lead over the patch, yep. Okay, well, you know what? That warms my heart because it's against the Patriots. There you go, sir. Not, oh, I didn't know that. So cool. Um, so very rarely used because you got to execute it perfectly. And earlier this year, the Chargers tried it against the uh, Carolina Panthers on the last play of the game and 
failed. So Dolphins, I guess, are 2-0 and with the hook and ladder. So they go into halftime, and the Chargers, who had been up 24-0, feeling high on the hog, were now up 24-17. And then the Dolphins got the ball early in the second half and scored a tying touchdown. So game on, 24-24. This was not going to be a blowout. Now the game went back and forth with a lot of offense, not a lot of defense, a lot of turnovers. And then the Dolphins eventually took the lead 38-31 in the fourth quarter. Now the Chargers came back down the field and um, were in striking distance when Fouts basically sent his receivers all in the end zone and he lofted a uh, pass towards the back of the end zone. And it looked like it was going to Winslow and Winslow kind of went up for it, but it went over Winslow's head and appeared to be sailing out of bounds. But James Brooks, who had been doing a little bit of a tightrope walk in the back of the end zone, caught it, got both feet, feet in bounds, and it was a touchdown. Bernersch gave the extra point, 38-38. to 38. Now, the Dolphins got the ball back, and the way you used to know the Chargers can make something happen in under a minute, anyone against the Chargers defense we knew can make something happen in under a minute. So Strzok moved them down into San Diego territory very easily. And one of my favorite kicker names of all time, Uwe Von Schaman, lined up for the field goal. Now, the Chargers kicker was Rolf Benershka. So if you don't know football from that era, not every kicker had a German name, just these, mainly these two guys. So um, this, Mr. Uh, Uwe Von Schaman lined up for the field goal, and the Chargers put in all their tallest guys and their best jumpers. And um, it was jumped, uh, sorry, the ball was snapped, jumped up, and it was blocked by Kellen Winslow. 43-yard attempt, four seconds left. Winslow got up over the line, got a fingertip on it, and blocked it. Going to overtime, free football for everybody. So the Chargers got the ball in OT. They drove. Rolf Benershka, the man I mentioned earlier, lined up for a 19-yard field goal which would have won it. There wasn't the you get, in, you get a shot after the other team hits a field goal overtime rolls, and Bernerska missed it, a 19-yard field goal. My heart sank because I knew the Dolphins were going to move the ball on us. Everyone was tired, and the Dolph- even when the Chargers' defense was well-rested, they weren't, they weren't that solid at stopping anybody. So the Dolphins took the ball, drove down the field, and Uwe Von Schaman lined up for another field goal. He, he got, they got the snap, put it down. He lined up, he kicked it, and it went up, and it was blocked again, this time by Gary Big Hands Johnson. So the Chargers got the ball back, and granted, this is almost 14 minutes of overtime had been played. These were 15-minute overtime sessions. The Chargers finally got the ball. They moved it down the field. They got stalled at the, tw- at the 12, and they lined up for Bernerska 29-yarder, and he put it right through the uprights. Game over, 41-38 Chargers. Now, everyone was exhausted. The fans, uh, the players. I mean, Winslow, there's famous footage of him getting carried off like he was a war-wounded um, soldier being carried off the field, dehydrated, unable to stand. Um, there was just, it was an amazing, iconic moment. And the Chargers fans who watched it relish it forever. And actually, every NFL fan who watched it there's lots of replays. Relish it is an amazing game. At the time, I was 13 years old. Uh, I was watching the game alone in my the otherwise empty house of my aunt and uncle. 
nobody was home. Everyone had plans because it was January 2nd and I obviously wasn't as popular as everyone else in my family. Oh. Uh, whatever. I still got to watch the game, so I, no, I don't want any sympathy. And when the kick went through, I ran around the house screaming my head off. And if I could drink beer at that point, I probably would have chugged something. But I was screaming so loud, I absolutely terrified my aunt uncle's little miniature poodle truffle who hid under the bed for the rest of the night. But that was an, just an amazing, an amazing game to watch. And it's probably one of my favorite games of all time. You got to watch this game. I have to admit something to you. Sorry, excuse okay. me. Confession. Confession. I was over at a friend's house and his parents said, we have plans. We're taking you to the movies. I couldn't be rude and say no. So after halftime, we went to see the Chevy Chase classic Modern Problems. Came back. I, this before, you know, iPhones, internet, anything. Came back, quickly rushed to their house, albeit really to turn the TV. And it was the post-game celebration, you know, for the game. So At least yes, they won. Won that one. So. At least you watched a shitty movie by a mediocre SNL alum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but the Chargers won. So maybe this was their year. They're going for the AFC Championship the second year in a row. They won on the road in boiling, humid Miami. Now they were up for um, – now they were going to play on the road again because, remember, they only won 10 games. They were playing against the AFC Central champ, the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, this was to be played in Cincinnati, the Queen City. Now, Charlotte calls itself the Queen City as well, so I think those two should duke it out, but that's another story. So the Bengals had played their way to the best record in the AFC. In the first year, they sported their striped helmets. Um, so they probably thought new helmets, new attitude. And they, they were very successful. They were led by a cool veteran quarterback named Kenny Anderson. Actually, he was known as Ken Anderson. Kenny Anderson was a basketball player who played for the Nets. But Ken Anderson always looked like he needed more sleep. He always had rings under his eyes. Um, but he played so well in 81 that he was an all-pro and made the Pro Bowl. His main receiver was this string bean of a guy at a University of Florida named Chris Collinsworth, who's now announces just about every football game on TV. They had a Mack truck of a running back named Pete Johnson, who would later get traded to the Chargers for James Brooks, which was a huge freaking imbalanced uh, trade. And they had Hall of Famer left tackle Anthony Munoz. So they had a real def- scrappy defense, really good D-backs. And plus, they were playing at home, and they had elements on their side. Now, the elements, I should say. As famously hot as the Chargers-Dolphins game was the week before, this day was Famously cold. This was a uh, wind chill kickoff temperature of minus 59 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 59 degrees Fahrenheit. There were still some Bengals fans that just had body paint and no shirt. I'm thinking they probably died of exposure, but I don't know. So here come the Chargers from Southern California. They got their short sleeve shirts. They just won a win in the tropical climate of Miami. And And they're coming to Riverfront Stadium. I can't even imagine how hard that ground was at Riverfront. It was turf. It was concrete. The kickers that day said that kicking the ball was like kicking a rock. So just to make the, make, make the death go quickly, the Bengals completely manhandled the Chargers. The Chargers were completely out of their element, so to speak. Final score was 27-7 Bengals. 
The Chargers fumbled four times. They lost two of those fumbles, fouled through two picks. Um, and if either of us were there, I think we would have cried icicles. It was so cold, you could not produce tears in minus 59. But we watched it instead from the basement rumpus room of some cousin we don't even talk to anymore. And I was warm that day and eating Cheetos, but it was a sad day indeed. I was wearing my number 14 Dan Fouts jersey in any case. So 79, they were undone by stolen signals. In 1980, they were undone by a demoralizing deflected pass for a touchdown only in the game. In 81, they were defeated by the Ohio Ice Age and the, and the Tiger Kings from Ohio. So 1982 was going to be their year. Didn't you think so, Tim? Eh, not so fast, my friend. Exactly. You know, 82 year was already going to be different. You know, an NFL player strike led to play being suspended from late September until November and shortened the season to nine games. Also, of all things, it was such a wonky season. A kicker, an American style kicker named Mark Mosley, controversially won the NFL MVP award. He missed, he only missed one field goal all year but he missed three PATs. And this back in the day, PATs were like 20-yard field goals. Go figure on that one. Straight-on kicker, Hasselhoff-like hair, won the MVP over a guy Fouts. Go figure. Yeah, that was ridiculous. So Chargers offense, once again, they had the same model. We are going to score more points than you, period. That's how we're going to beat you. So – they were the top-scoring team in the NFL, put up 32 points a game, 450 yards a game. Defense was optional. They finished 24 to 28 teams in points allowed. Of all, 24 out of 28 teams in points allowed. Now, they did, you know, now that all these guys had you know, been traded away, they're good defenders or got old, they filled their gaps with not good uh, draft picks, but free agent veterans who were good on other teams and well past their prime. Guys like Tim Fox, Bruce Laird from the Patriots and Colts, respectively. Um, you know, D-backs who were definitely a few steps slower than they used to be. But they were fun to watch. They were nerve-wracking to watch, but they were fun to watch. They still had Fouts, Muncie, Chandler, Winslow, Wilkerson, all going to the Pro Bowl. Now, as much as Tim loved J.J., I loved Wes Chandler, number 89. Now, that year was particularly spectacular. In nine games, and actually he only played eight of those nine games, he got 1,032 yards receiving, 21 yards per catch, and scored nine touchdowns. Um, Now, the team, obviously he wasn't the only one scoring. So in consecutive games, they scored 30, 30, 41, 50, 44, and 34 points. And he only lost one of those games. They even outgunned both Super Bowl finalists from the previous year, the 49ers and Bengals, in consecutive weeks in two really entertaining seesaw uh, games. But the most satisfying win of the year was the Monday night revenge victory over the Bengals in San Diego. So the Chargers won 50-34. to It's obviously defense optional. Um, they turned the ball over three times, yet still put up 661 yards of total offense for the night. Okay, James Brooks, who, as I mentioned, would go on to star for the Bengals after a horrible trade for Pete Johnson, scored three touchdowns. Wes Chandler scored two touchdowns and had 260 yards receiving just himself. Now, because the Chargers defense wasn't too solid, 
Ken Anderson threw for 400 yards and two touchdowns, yet lost. The Chargers even sacked uh, Anderson in the end zone for safety to kind of round out the scoring. So the D came, came to play at least one for one play. So that was a crazy game to watch. Now the Chargers uh, ended the season 6-3, and three, which was good enough for the playoffs. Now the 82 playoffs, the Chargers and the other teams that made it were put into a Super Bowl, quote, tournament. And the Chargers' first-round opponent was the Pittsburgh Steelers in Three Rivers Stadium. Now, Three Rivers Stadium was the same, was really like Veterans Stadium in Philly or Riverfront in Cincinnati. These were cookie-cutter, multi-use, round stadiums with astroturf that would destroy knees and destroy toes and careers and had concrete under it. And it was the same type of stadium where the Chargers' dreams froze up and died the year before. On top of that, the Steelers had not lost a playoff game there in 10 years. And at that point, the Steelers made the playoffs pretty much every year. So the Chargers, like, were really up against it. Now, these were your father's 1970 Steelers that you all, most people can name by heart, but they were a little bit longer in the tooth. They still had Chuck Knoll coaching them. They still had the very likable Terry Bradshaw as their quarterback, number 12. Franco Harris who I ran into once in Pittsburgh and is still big and still can play. It looks like he could play. He was their star running back. Lynn Swan and John Stallworth were still their best wide receivers. Their defense was still loaded. They still had the steel curtain D. The whole line had retired, but somehow they still were playing at a high level. They had both solid jacks at linebacker, Lambert and Ham, And they still had insanely good D-backs. They had Mel Blunt and Donnie Shell who still could both intercept the ball and remove your spleen in the same play. So these Steelers led up the fourth fewest points in the NFL that year, 16.2 points a game, which is probably half of what the Chargers D was letting up. So Chargers are ready. They're like, all right, let's see what happens. The game began in the worst possible way for the Chargers. If you think that the deflected pass from the Raiders was bad, this opening kickoff was fumbled by James Brooks. It rolled into the end zone, and the Steelers fell on it. 7-0 on the first play of the game. It was, like, it was like a blooper reel. He was auditioning for the NFL bloopers. So the Chargers were down 7-0 before the Steelers fans could finish their sixth Iron City beer. That's how early it was. Now, the Chargers did get some of that back when Fouts did a long 12-play drive. Chandler was all was just tearing through the uh, secondary, got him in a field goal range, and our buddy Benershka put it through 7-3. Now, the Steelers responded with their own drive, capped off by a Bradshaw quarterback sneak, and they were winning 14-3 at home. So, Tim, do you remember this game at all? Of course. We were at the Berkowitzes in New Jersey. Exactly. The Berkowitzes in Tenafly, New Jersey, the best place to watch the underdog Chargers Take on the since Pittsburgh Steelers. We used up all the mojo in our basement, mom and dad's bedroom. Yeah, so on the road. We and needed, go to, right. We had to go to we had to go across the Hudson River to get positive mojo for the Chargers. Now, I mentioned the Chargers were down 14-3. They came right back. Um, and on the first play, the second quarter, James Brooks, who had fumbled the opening kickoff, redeemed himself on an 18-yard touchdown runner on the right end. And he actually on this, you got to watch a replay of this run. He looked like a small Earl Campbell. 
He was running towards the end zone. He put down his head, and he basically ran over Hall of Fame strong safety Donnie Shell like he was like in an obstacle course. It was an amazing, amazing run. And uh, the Chargers were only down 14 to 10 because he scored on the play. So the Steelers were up, and the Chargers were not going to get blown out. It didn't look like that, at least. Chargers got the ball back, started an epic drive, lasted six minutes, but they got to the Steeler nine-yard line, and Mel Blunt recovered a rare Kellen Winslow fumble. Winslow was big, strong, rarely, rarely lost the ball, but when three Steelers hit you at once, sometimes you might fumble. So the Steelers were back in business. Now, remember I mentioned those aging steel, Charger free agents? Thankfully, Bruce Laird, who came from the Colts, uh, intercepted a Bradshaw pass at the Charger goal line that was, pro- that was probably going to blow up in the game. So the Chargers drove down the field efficiently, and right before halftime, with a few minutes left, Fouts hit tight end Eric Sievers for a touchdown, and the Chargers actually led 17-14 to 14 at the half. It looked like the Chargers were not going to go gently into that good night or cloudy Pittsburgh afternoon, of which there are many. So Steelers came out in the second half and decided the Chargers' defensive backs were weak and threw, threw, and threw. They moved right down the field, and Bradshaw hit tight end Benny Cunningham for a touchdown, 21-17 to 17 Steelers ahead. Now the Chargers, they were not to be outdone, you know, Whenever their offense was on the field, you knew good things could happen. They marched right down the field, but they were faced with a fourth and one at the Pittsburgh 14. So we were crying, that we were screaming at the TV, take the easy field goal. Instead, they decided to run it up the middle. They handed off to short yardage running back specialist and former Heisman Trophy winner John Capaletti. And he was absolutely stuffed and steamrolled by the Steelers for no gain, and the Chargers came away with nothing, not even something for Joey. No bueno for Joey. No bueno. So the Steelers' cast of usual suspects, like Bradshaw, Harris, and Stallworth, proceeded to move them right down the field easily, and they scored on a Stallworth touchdown catch. So at that point, the Chargers were down 11 points, 28-17, to 17, and it appeared like their hopes were disappearing like Kaiser Soze. Now, Pittsburgh got the ball back again, up 11. And they began passing against the soft San Diego secondary immediately. Now, the Chargers were given a little bit of hope when a former CFL journeyman cornerback named Jeff Allen made his second and final career interception off a Bradshaw pass in Pittsburgh territory. You see that, Vernon Perry? I'm over you. CFL cast-offs. They can help us, too. So, Chargers, it was like the Bills game. The Chargers were moving the ball down, and they got a scare. When Mel Blunt intercepted the ball, um, he didn't drop it like in the Bills game, but Mel Blunt intercepted the ball, but it was negated by a defensive holding penalty. And soon after, Fouts hit Winslow on a touchdown, cutting the lead to 28-24 to with six minutes left. Now the defense needed to step up and make a stop. And did they, Tim? They did. Shocking. They, did. they made, yeah, they made a stop. So with four minutes to go, the Chargers got the ball back after stopping the Steelers, and they moved down the down the field on the arms of Fouts and on the legs of Muncie. 
Now, I was talking about the Chargers passing attack. That's because the Steelers had the best rush defense in the NFL. Yet somehow, Chuck Muncie ground out 126 yards on 25 carries against this stout defensive unit. So maybe some of his homies from Uniontown, PA, were in the stands cheering for him. All right, so the Chargers now, they had one minute remaining. They had the ball. They're moving down the field, down four. They had third down at the Steelers' 12, right? But they couldn't go for they couldn't go for a field goal. So Dan Fouts was known for a lot of things in his career: his beard, his his toughness, his take command attitude, his arm, his quick little dropbacks. But he was not known for being particularly mobile. So what Fouts did next surprised everybody. He actually snapped the ball rolled left, I mean, rolled right, I should say, and threw back left on a misdirection tight end screen to Kellen Winslow, who got ahead of steam and plowed into the end zone, passed and over the shocked Steeler defensive backs. Game over. 71, I mean 71, that would be nice. 31-28 San Diego were the victors. So the Chargers had somehow won on the road in the cold, and then, ironically, they were on to the warmth where they were going to play Miami in the next round of the playoffs. Isn't that funny how life is sometimes, Tim? Cold, warm, warm, cold. It all works out in the end. Exactly. So they had beaten the Dolphins in the warmth and then lost to the Bengals in the cold. Now they had beaten the Steelers in the cold. Could they beat the Dolphins in the warmth once again. Not so fast. Not friend. so fast. So these Dolphins actually had the second best defense behind the Steelers. Now they were called the Killer Bees um, because they had six of 11 defensive starters all had their last name start with B. They had Baumhauer. They had Kim Camper, They had the Blackwood brothers, Lyle and Glenn. Um, they were a pretty formidable unit. It wasn't just a gimmick. They were really good. And the first round of the playoffs, they absolutely manhandled the Patriots. So, unfortunately for the Chargers, and their, from their Orange Bowl, Bowl victory last year, this was a flip script. David Woodley, who had been yanked from the first game the year before, was actually on his game and led the Dolphins to a 24 to nothing lead, just as the Chargers had the previous year. But the Chargers, even when they answered with a Charlie Joyner touchdown, to cut it to 24-6, Bernershka, our boy, missed the frickin' extra point. Now, the Chargers did cut the lead 27 to 27-13 by halftime after Muncie had a run, but the Chargers, you really felt like they were hanging by a thread the entire game. Let's move on to the second half, where there was no real suspense. <laughs> Final score, Miami 34, Chargers 13. Chargers were done again. Now, the, the Dolphins would go on to beat the Jets 14-0 in the AFC Championship in an absolutely muddy monsoon where A.J. Dewey tore up the Jets and uh, Richard Todd and the Jets fans' hopes. And then they would go on to lose to Joe Gibbs' Redskins 27-17. In that Super Bowl, Mark Mosley kicked two field goals and three points after. Not my MVP. My MVP was Wes Chandler that year. All right, so now the aftermath, or the autopsy, if you will. In the following seasons, 
The offense was led by Fouts, who was getting older, with less weapons around him. He still put up good stats, but the team can only muster one winning season over the next nine years. They were disappointing 6-10 and in 83, and in subsequent years they hovered around 500. Now let's talk about some of the players. Now this is the saddest one. Now Chuck Muncie never played after the 84 season, having made three Pro Bowls, one with the Saints, two with the Chargers. He could have made more Pro Bowls probably if drugs had not derailed his career. He began using cocaine as a senior in college, and that really affected his life and his career. He was traded by the Chargers actually to the Dolphins early in 84 because he missed a flight uh, to a game. But then when he got to the Dolphins, he failed the drug test. He was positive for cocaine, so they cut him. He was subsequently suspended for a year. Did try to make a comeback with the Vikings, but got cut. Um, the Vikings learned of his drug abuse. And sadly later became homeless, spent a little time in prison for dealing drugs. But later in life, he actually became a youth mentor, um, raised funds for melanoma research out in California, and actually um, had some form of redemption. But unfortunately, drugs took a toll on his body, and he died too young of a heart attack at the age of 60 in 2013. Now the, the rest of our rest of our you know final stories are not as not as heartbreaking, but um, Winslow unfortunately never got to the Super Bowl. He was off to an amazing record-setting pace in '84. He had 55 receptions in seven games, which was spectacular, you know, now and spectacular then. But in the seventh game of the season against the now Los Angeles Raiders, he planted his knee when he caught the ball and suffered a horrific right knee injury when he was tackled. He was done for the year. I remember watching that game and just was absolutely deflated. Chargers lost, and they lost Winslow. He came back the next year in the middle of the season, but was never really as dominant as he had been. He did retire after 87, went on to become um, a member of both the College and Pro Football Hall of Fame. He went to five Pro Bowls, Consensus All-Pro 80, 81, and 82, and was a member of the NFL 75th anniversary all-time team, but he probably would have traded a lot of that to get to one Super Bowl. Now, our favorite coach of the time, Don Coriel, maybe my favorite coach of all time, frankly, he was fired halfway through the 86 season by the Chargers owners. The Chargers were 1-8. and eight. They weren't doing anything right. They eventually finished 4-12. and 12. Coriel never coached again, lived out his life in peaceful retirement in the Northwest, and passed away in 2010. Sadly, he was never inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I think is a great travesty. A travesty of a mockery of a sham. But he is in the College Football Hall of Fame. It's, it's sad about Don Coriel, isn't it, Tim? Yep. One of those things where, like I said, he revolutionized the game. You hear that a lot. But in such a – he turned – really, he laid the uh, groundwork. He created the blueprint for changing from a defensive-minded league to an offensive-minded league. And, like, we talked about – we talked about coaching trees, Hall of Famers under him. Um, it was an amazing career. And it's sad he never got another chance. He might have not wanted it, though. I know. I know. But he was – he probably had some offers. But he and his wife settled in the Northwest, and they lived peacefully. And uh, But he, he deserved at least the Super Bowl. Now, Charlie Joyner, the meticulous route runner with hands of steel and that anything that was near him, he would catch and hold on to. 
He retired after the 86 season, was the NFL's all-time receptions leader, as I mentioned earlier, <coughs> Excuse me, but has since been surpassed many times. All in all, he played 17 years, went to three Pro Bowls, one first-team All-Pro, and went to the Hall of Fame as well. And now he's uh, been a coach on a lot of teams um, where they've really been able to uh, take advantage of his expertise. And he pretty much looks the same as he did when he was playing. Yes, he, he, just look, he looks like he can still go out there. Old when he was a rookie, you know? Exactly. He actually, he did look – he looked old right out of school, out of Grambling. So, now – the 36-year-old Dan Fouts' last hurrah was the strike-shortened 87 season. And they were actually looking pretty good. West Chandler was still playing. They were 1-1. One and one. They had some good young defense, offensive talent, I should say. And then they played two scab games um, where they actually won both of them during the strike. And actually their quarterback was future UCLA coach Rick Neuheisel. Not nah. much of himself on the, in the pros. Rick Rick. Yeah, I know. He was he coached he coached U Dub, right? Too? Yes, sir. To a Rose Bowl, two thousand. Go dogs. Yeah. Um, but he liked to gamble. But that's another story. So Mr. Neuheisel gave them two wins as he captained the scab team, quarterbacked them. And then the Chargers came out after this after the scab games and they were eight and one. They were even featured in Sports Illustrated, not on the cover, which is a well known curse. But there was a whole article about him being the most surprising team of that season. But even they weren't even on the cover yet. They that was the kiss of death, or el beso de muerte, as the Spanish say. And the Chargers lost the rest of their games, and they finished eight and seven and did not make the playoffs. Fouts retired. Chandler went on to play one year in, for the 49ers, which seemed like. The place where the uh, Chargers go to retire or go to the Hall of Fame. Or they win Super Bowls. Or win Super Bowls. But the era of Eric Coriel, which had been on a respirator since 84, was now officially dead. Uh, Fouts did make the Hall of Fame in 93, which obviously was much deserved, and he's now an NFL announcer. Still has the awesome beard. Um, and he finished his career having played in um, six Pro Bowls. He was on the All-Pro team three times. NFL Offensive Player of the Year in 82, but sadly never made it to the Super Bowl. My favorite receiver, Wes Chandler, number 89, retired in 88 after making the Pro Bowl four times. Was an All-Pro in 82 when he put up those insane numbers in the strike short year. Um, And was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame because he was a spectacular receiver for the Gators up in Gainesville. Um, and since then, he has gone on to serve as a coach and assistant coach for just about every league from college to pro that you can imagine. Um, I don't know where he is now, but he's still one of my all-time favorite players, period. Um, the Chargers would not return to the playoffs again until 1992 when Stan the Man Humphreys, who they got from trade from Washington, uh, would take them on a great regular season run at the playoffs. Um, but the, the eight starting quarterbacks that the Chargers started. What's that? Sorry, excuse me, Pete. You know who they lost to that year in 92? 92, who the Chargers lost to? Yep, the Dolphins again. That's right. That's right. They beat the Chiefs in the yep, first round 17 nothing, And then they lost to the Dolphins like 33 to nothing. I didn't want to not, bring that up. but not Thanks for the uh, PTSD flashback. But you're right. The Dolphins seem to have their number 
for most of the playoffs, but they, they do have another win under the belt against the Dolphins, but we're not going to talk about that. So there were eight quarterbacks between Fouts and Stan the Man Humphreys. Um, sadly, I know all of them, and they're the answers to the most pathetic trivia question ever, but we're not going to repeat their names. <laughs> um, Chargers did make the Super Bowl, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, in 94 under Humphreys and hard-known coach Bobby Ross. They beat the Steelers and the Dolphins, their old nemeses, along the way before they got killed by Steve Young and the Niners. But that's another sad story for another day. So, in closing, that's the story of the Chargers of the late 70s and early 80s, one of the most exciting NFL teams never to make the Super Bowl, let alone win one. They had tons of talent on offense, defense, put up insane numbers for the era. And for one year, they even had a solid defense, so they actually were balanced. Um, but they couldn't get over the hump into the, and get to the Super Bowl. So um, side product of their success and their cool uniforms is that they made several of us football star suburban New York boys, like me, my Tim, obviously my co-host, Russ Warner, Eric Stangle, and uh, Ted Camp, who's a professional musician, I believe, in Europe. Um, all of us have gone on to other things besides being sad sack Charger fans, but we were all united in being suburban New York boys who somehow knelt down before the shrine of Dan Fouts, Don Coriel, and the Chargers. We still all have that hope that someday a bearded quarterback from the University of Oregon would use his arm to bring the Chargers to ultimate NFL glory. Just so happens in 2020, the Chargers drafted another Oregon Duck quarterback, Justin Herbert, in the first round. He's got a baby face, but maybe someday he can grow a beard. What do you think? <laughs> you hear us, Justin? Stop shaving now. Exactly. Grow that beard out. Yep. All right, Tim. That is all for this installment of the No Cigar Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me, Tim. Pete, great job doing all the research, all the writing. This was a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. All right. Peace out, bro. Peace out, guys. The No Cigar Podcast is by Pug and Monkey Productions. The title came from an idea from my son, Eli Shaw. And I wish to thank not only my co-host, Tim Shaw, but also Lobo and his band, Checky Brown, for generously lending us their song, Hippie Bully, to use as our theme song.